KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Wednesday, March 9th. How is San Diego's new ambulance company faring so far? More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. California Governor Gavin Newsom gave his State of the State address last night. It comes as California faces the highest gas prices in the nation, at an average of $5.44 a gallon. The governor proposed aid to Californians in the form of a tax rebate. Now it's clear we have to go farther. And that's why working with legislative leadership, I'll be submitting a proposal to put money back in the pockets of Californians to address rising gas prices. Newsom didn't provide specifics about the rebate, but a spokesperson said the rebate could occur before May. A new proposed development project could dramatically change the Seaport Village area in downtown San Diego. Under the plan, the existing village would be replaced with hotels, an aquarium, restaurants, an art exhibit, and a yacht club. The plan proposed on Tuesday has the support of the San Diego City Council, the mayor, and the Chamber of Commerce, though it'll be some time before the port makes a final decision. San Diego County Public Health officials reported 357 new COVID-19 cases on Tuesday and six additional deaths. Hospitalizations continue to decline, down by 14 to 294. That's according to state data. The county's COVID positivity test rate also continues to drop. It's at 3.6%. That's down from 4.4% last Friday. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego news now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. San Diego's new ambulance provider is getting its first progress report today. The City Council's Public Safety and Livable Neighborhood Committee will be looking at how operations have been going thus far. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman has more. Falk ambulances have been on the streets in San Diego full-time for about three months now. The company won the city's five-year 911 contract after beating out the previous provider, American Medical Response. Falk promised more staffing and new life-saving equipment. The ramp-up process was challenging. Jeff Bame runs Falk San Diego Operations. The company spent six months building up before taking over just after Thanksgiving. He acknowledges that staffing requirements haven't been met yet. So I'll tell you we're slightly below that level. It depends. It's day to day. Now there's challenges to that. Bame says the most recent COVID-19 surge complicated operations. Now we just came on the other side of the Omicron virus, so that's really good. And our staffing's improving very well. But January was challenging. 
you know, 25% of our employees were out at some time sick with COVID. Data from the city of San Diego over the last three months shows that Falk hasn't quite met their monthly staffing requirement. In February, they were about 8% short. In terms of the unit hours, we're working uh, towards meeting the goal that we said we would meet, and we're in a much better position today than we were when we started. Fewer staff means some have to pull extra shifts, and the city is worried about busy crews and the potential for burnout. As we move through the contract, you know, we continue to uh, address the requirements, and Falk, as I mentioned, is, is making achievements with uh, with each of those requirements. Jody Pierce is the Deputy Chief of Emergency Medical Services for the San Diego Fire Rescue Department. She says the city runs the 911 system with Falk providing ambulance transports. Each fire apparatus has a firefighter paramedic on it, and then the second medic is coming from Falk Ambulance. And again, they're providing the transport to the hospital from the incident. And that's where we work together to provide the service. The department says to their knowledge, everyone has gotten the care they needed. And Pierce says that Falk's three-month report card doesn't show the full picture. I feel very good about, you know, where we are right now in our contract agreement with them. Falk is following through on other contract obligations like bringing in new ambulances. At least half of the fleet is brand new and Falk says all the vehicles will be in by April. Brand new ambulances, you can never go wrong with a brand new ambulance. Mark Selipak is a paramedic supervisor for Falk. He's worked emergency medical response in the city over the last 22 years, which has seen many different operators. Rural Metro, SDMSE, AMR, and now Falk, Mobile Health Corp. Celopac says the ambulances come with new tech that helps first responders and patients like power loading gurneys. Save our back. It's also with the, the wing gurneys. It's uh, more suited for our heavier patients, but one of the big factors in those gurneys is it, it's, it prevents injuries. And it takes a lot of pressure off your back. It's also now just one person instead of sometimes two or three. Ojeni Tuma is a 911 paramedic with Falk. She says ambulances also now have Lucas devices. They deliver automatic chest compressions. It's super easy to use, yeah. And then um, it'll basically start compressions. It allows one more person to do other things rather than compressions. Um, it actually frees up two people. While they have new equipment, staffing issues are persisting. Falk reports that response times are at or near 90% across the city. We're really proud of our of our Falk employees, our paramedics and our EMTs that are responding out to the, to the San Diego residents and making sure that we get there in as quickly as possible time as we can. And, you know, it's just been really under some tremendous strains in the last few months with COVID and folks being out ill. And uh, they're just working really hard and we're so proud of them. And, and I want the community to know that they're working really hard for them as well. Falk could be fined by the city if they don't meet contract requirements. The San Diego Fire Rescue Department says they will continue working with the ambulance company to deliver the highest level of emergency services. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News. Donations have been coming in to the House of Ukraine from San Diegans hoping to help the people of Ukraine. But it's no longer the only location where donations are being collected. KPBS reporter Jacob Ayer says another collection center is in City Heights. San Diego's House of Ukraine is working with other local organizations like Help Ukraine Now to try and help those caught in the ongoing chaos with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Victoria Ivanova is a Ukrainian immigrant who's an active member with the House of Ukraine in Balboa Park. She says she's worried for her family, who lives in the Ukrainian capital city of Kiev. So I cannot just 
sit and cry. I'm trying to do everything possible to support my country from this side. Even if I'm not there, I'm still fighting. Ivanova says the biggest need right now is for medical and military supplies, which can be dropped off at their El Cajon Boulevard unit, which operates from 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. daily. For more information and ways to help, go to houseofukraine.org. Jacob Ayer, KPBS News. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria launched the Bridge to Home program this week. The first round of the program combines local, state, and federal dollars to finance seven affordable housing developments across the city. KPBS's Andrew Bowen recently spoke with Mayor Todd Gloria. Here's that interview. Now, competition for these public subsidies for affordable housing is always very intense, and there were some developers who applied but didn't get access to this funding. What made these seven projects that are part of this initial round win out? I think a couple of things. First off, when you look at the communities where they're located, San Ysidro, downtown, East Village, and other parts of our city, what you see is a nexus uh, with access to high-quality public transit and other non-vehicle modes of transportation, as well as proximity to jobs. Also, a balanced community. We have a project that we're funding in the community of Rancho Bernardo, uh, which many folks often assume has no affordable housing. Well, this will actually help create some housing in that community that would be affordable to low and middle-income San Diegans. I think that's a good thing. So it's that proximity to jobs and existing infrastructure coupled with distribution around the city that I think was most attractive uh, when we were selecting uh, from those who uh, asked to participate in Bridge to Home. Of course, you can't talk about housing without infrastructure. And the city council today is hearing a report that found the city's infrastructure is more underfunded than ever before. San Diego would need an extra $4.3 billion over the next five years to fully fund its infrastructure needs. What does a mayor do with a problem of that magnitude? Just keep moving forward. I mean, it is uh, enormous. To put it in some context for uh, your viewers and listeners, this is more than we spend in a year uh, on our entire budget uh, at the city. So it is enormous. That said, though, Andrew, some of this is driven by current circumstances, inflation that average San Diegans are dealing with, the city has to deal with as well. We also have the challenge of uh, the great resignation and the fact that uh, workers are hard to find. That drives up cost too. Um, So there are some peculiarities with our current situation, this snapshot in time the council's looking at. Uh, But there are also some of our long-term challenges, which is that a lot of our city's infrastructure was built in the middle of the last century, and a lot of it is coming to the end of its useful life. Uh, So it's not a matter of a pothole here or a street resurfacing there, but it's a pump station that was built decades and decades ago that really can't continue to function. We need to replace it. Um, It's those big ticket costs that are basically coming due now that we have to find a way to fund. Good news in all this, Andrew, is that we are making internal uh, changes to try and be more efficient and effective with the existing dollars that we are given to maintain our infrastructure. And we also have the opportunity to compete for some of the dollars that are in President Biden's bipartisan infrastructure bill uh, that will help us to address this crisis. Uh, It won't be a cure-all. We will still have a significant gap between the resources that we have and the needs that we have, uh, but we will be able to deal with it a bit more efficiently, effectively with those federal dollars and with those internal streamlinings that we're working on now. I want to ask you about traffic safety. 2021 was a very deadly year on San Diego streets. There were 72 traffic deaths, and that's more than any year since the city adopted its Vision Zero goal of ending all traffic deaths. So the city clearly hasn't been acting with enough urgency on this issue of traffic safety. What are you doing to prevent more deaths from happening? 
We're trying to do a lot, but we could, of course, do more. Last year's budget, we established a team here at the city that as we are moving forward with road repairs, uh, making sure that they include uh, multimodal options, pedestrian and bicycle enhancements. Uh, our new STAT team, uh, which is interested in trying to take our existing adopted uh, bicycle master plan and executing those projects faster than they have been historically. Uh, working with SANDAC to cut down the time it takes to actually deploy some of their projects. And you've seen progress on Pershing Avenue uh, through Balboa Park, where you know we've made the decision to move forward and there are people actually working out on that street today. More must be done. We're not where we need to be, particularly not just for safety of individuals, which is the most important thing, but also when it comes to meeting the obligations under our climate action plan. I do want to note, Andrew, we do see a, a fair amount of negative behavior uh, from motorists people driving at excessive speed, distracted driving, things of that nature, um, we can build some of the greatest infrastructure possible. And that may reduce the probability of a terrible and tragic outcome. But motorist behavior is a big part of this. And that was San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria speaking with KPBS's Andrew Bowen. Coming up, will higher gas prices impact tourism in San Diego? We'll have more on that next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. Gas and aviation fuel prices continue to climb, and it's left some wondering when, if, or how that might impact San Diego's tourism industry. KPBS's John Carroll has more. The average price of a gallon of gas in San Diego County on Tuesday was $5.48, up 10 cents from Monday. The price of aviation fuel is also rising fast. San Diego's tourism economy has been recovering nicely over the past year or so, but will those high prices slow that recovery? We asked the Auto Clubs and Jane Venegas. Historically, high gas prices have not stopped people from traveling, but they could modify their plans, maybe go somewhere closer to home. Venegas says it's just too early to tell if that pattern will hold now that we're in uncharted territory when it comes to gas prices. John Carroll, KPBS News. Meanwhile, in the North County, a little bit of relief from the climbing gas prices came in the form of a mobile laundry trailer. KPBS reporter Tanya Thorne has that story. The lived experiences mobile laundry trailer rolled into Maricosta Community College Tuesday. It's the first time the trailer's been to the Oceanside Community Learning Center campus. Oscarin Ortega, the group's founder, says laundry is a basic need that many students and community members can't afford right now due to the rise in gas and food prices. Having a preload of laundry saves them about $20, $40, and it just takes the burden off them. So just having the safe space, the, uh, saving that, that extra bucks in their life, it's, it's helping them out big time. Free clothes, showers, groceries, and resources were available for anyone attending the event. 
The free laundry and resource event will continue on the last Tuesday of every month and is open to all. Tanya Thorne, KPBS News. Now on stage at the Old Globe is a new play called El Borracho. It explores the realities of a Mexican-American family dealing with an alcoholic family member. The play is named after the popular Lotaria card game, namely the card that depicts a stereotype of a drunkard. KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon Evans recently spoke with the play's director, Edward Torres, and the playwright, Tony Meneses. Tony... Let's start at the very beginning. What drove you to write this play? I was in school at Juilliard, and uh, my teacher, Marsha Norman, who's you know, just a renowned Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright, she has this philosophy that at one point in a writer's career, you have to write the play that scares you. And that phrase alone immediately conjured this play for me. So it's a very personal story. It's a, a play about my father. Uh, and when he passed away, it's something that when it happened as an artist, I sort of knew one day I would have to contend with it in that way. And it, it took a while for me to finally be ready for that. And I think this sort of homework assignment from Marsha was sort of the, the kick in the pants probably that I needed because uh, I was wrapping up my time in school and I hadn't written this play. I'd written five others and I had one more left to write. And I thought, you know, let me just finally do this thing that she believes is, you know, something uh, that every writer has to go through. So I wrote it then and thankfully, you know, it went well. And you know, I was terrified of sharing the story and terrified of sharing this play and exposing my family and myself uh, so vulnerably. But, you know, now that we're already open and we've gotten to see the show in front of audiences, it's been really rewarding that what I thought was perhaps too specific, too rooted in my family story, actually a lot of people have been able to access and connect it to themselves and their families. So the alchemy, I think, worked out all well for the end. I love that. And as you sort of mentioned, this story revolves around a single family. And there are just three characters in the whole play, a divorced couple, Alma and Raul, who moves back into Alma's house when she begrudgingly agrees to take care of him. And there is their adult son. So Tony, can you tell us a little bit about the dynamic between the three of them? In the play, what felt important to me, the character, the son character is, you know, a little bit my proxy, my stand in in the narrative. And I just didn't want to center that character too much, his point of view into being there and the relationship in the family. So what felt really important to me was to actually root it in the couple, in this estranged couple and this, uh, you know, divorced couple, uh, the parents of this young character. And that for me is the mileage of the show. So, you know, it removes, I think, my own accountability and my own subjectivity of what happened. And I feel like I haven't seen that dynamic. I think we've seen narratives of like coming home stories where it is the kid or the young child that comes home and you see the world through their eyes. So I thought thought to flip that narrative and actually tell it through the ones who are home and what they experience in, in, in that story. So Eddie, I wanted to ask you a little bit about these characters too. I can imagine that when you're working with a script with just three characters, a lot depends on those roles. So what drew you to them, to this family? Well, I mean, you know, I think one of the really lovely things about this story, and yes, it's a personal story for Tony, and that is already, for me, fascinating. But I think also I was able to draw my own personal experiences from my own parents as well. So it made the story really universal. So the characters were very intriguing and kind of stood out to me because of the way Tony had laid those characters out. You know, Raul is not your mean drunkard by any stretch of the imagination. He's actually quite charming and quite wonderful when you see him. 
you know, the son is also someone who is very warm and genuine and someone who really cares about his parents. Alma is someone who is also very stern. She reminds me of my mother and my grandmother and all the matriarchs in my family who were very, very stern, but loving and caring, but very disciplined and very centered and focused. And so I was like, wow, this is not too far from my own family. And so the task was to find a set of actors that would embody that, not just within the physicality of the characters, but also within the narrative that Tony had set forth. So it was a lot of fun looking for these characters. And then actually when you find them, then it's a whole nother, you know, a whole nother surprise. So the actors were then also would bring their own experience in it because, you know, I think the idea of addiction and loss and a family that that breaks apart, there is something very human about that. It's not just the idea that, okay, well, this is a Latinx family or Mexican family. This could be somebody, you know, who could be from Poland or somebody from, you know, an African-American family. It could be many different ideas of what families are in, in, in this entire world and universe, right? So to me, that was probably the most fascinating and endearing qualities and actually really Really, really powerful as well. And I wanted to ask a little bit more about that and Latinx stories and how they're underrepresented in American theaters. Eddie, it was about 30 years ago that you co-founded Teatro Vista in Chicago, and that company has been working to change that. Can you talk a little bit about how that work has evolved over the last 30 years? I mean, I think it's it's really fascinating because there's always been, you know, plays about Latin American families. Now the term is Latinx or Latine families with their experience in the United States. It's different from Latin American theater versus, you know, abroad, whether if you're coming from Ecuador or Venezuela or Colombia, that's mostly Spanish speaking theater. This is more about the U.S. experience of Latinos here in this country. And so there really wasn't much of that, but there's been a culture of it for quite a long time, actually. Going back to the West Coast and Luis Valdez, going into the Eurekan theater in the 50s and 60s in New York. And I discovered a whole plethora of wonderful writers from different parts, you know, that had the American experience. So they were either Cuban or Puerto Rican or Colombian or Venezuelan. And so finding that work out and knowing that we weren't being represented in the theater in Chicago at that period of time in the 80s was kind of like a missing note for me. And so I decided to start Teatro Vista, which evolved out of another theater company in Chicago named Latino Chicago Theater Company, which I was also a member of. So that evolved and gave rise to Teatro Vista. And then Teatro Vista gave rise to probably another three or four other Latin X theater companies doing the same type of work. And so now, you know, we weren't the only ones carrying the banner of Latin X theater. There are now many other theaters in Chicago that are doing that, including Spanish language theater. So it was a, quite of a wonderful 30 years experience to see that evolve and grow and to then, of course, you know, focus on continuing new plays. My relationship with Teatro Vista still exists and continues. I'm also part of the ensemble as well. So hopefully I will get back there maybe within the next couple of years to continue the work and to continue to give Latinx artists an opportunity to write, to see their plays being produced and to act and to also work behind the scenes. This was fascinating for us because I think this is, I think, the first time I worked with an all Latin X lighting designer, set designer, composer. So it was a real big thing for me to see that happen, especially with this production. And that was playwright Tony Manessas and director Edward Torres speaking with KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon Evans. El Borracho is at the Old Globe through March 20th. 
And that's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team, Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I.